to this week's episode of the Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be talking about the book of Hebrews with you today. Um, so the Gospel Project has given us quite a task, not just a portion of the book of Hebrews, which is can be a challenging book, but uh, chapters one through eight. So trying to fit eight chapters into 30 minutes, fairly difficult. So we're just going to kind of go broad view, book of Hebrews, what's it about? Um, and then we're going to hit a couple points that are specific um, related to what the book's about. And I know I'm being really vague. Usually I give you all the information up front, but I'm going Agatha Christie on you this week. I'm giving you the suspense thriller treatment. So you're just going to have to wait and see what it is we talk about from the book of Hebrews. But I am looking forward to it. We're going to be jumping all around the book of Hebrews. So if you don't want to have to flip furiously through your Bible, I just keep it to the side and I will be, we'll be reading a decent amount from it. So I'm looking forward to getting to do that and see what the book of Hebrews has for us. So um, just a little bit of background on the book of Hebrews. Um, one of the most unique things about Hebrews is that it's one of the uh, few books in the Bible in which there's really no great idea about who wrote it. Um, the author is, of Hebrews is unknown. Some people have talked about it being Paul, though it um, is very different in style than most of his writings. So that has led a lot of people to believe it's not Paul. Um, also, he doesn't claim that it's him. So that's something he normally does in his letters. Um, some people think it's a co-worker of Paul's like uh, Barnabas or Apollos, who gets a, a brief mention uh, in his relationship to, to the uh, Corinthian church. Um, but ultimately, we don't know. Like it's, it can be fun to speculate, but in terms of trying to really nail down and say, oh, I really think it's this person, it's kind of an exercise in futility when even the book itself doesn't tell us who the author is. Um, that's pretty tough. So it is unique in that way. Um, it is likely to uh, an audience that has at least been heavily influenced by Judaism. So it's not um, cut and dried that it's just about uh, just written to um, Hebrews or Jewish people um, as the title insinuates, but um, there's just a lot of language of the Old Testament. In fact, uh, the author is going to quote the Old Testament 35 times throughout this book. Um, and there's just a, a lot of the subject matter is going to be about um, Jesus and his relationship to really the rest of Scripture. So it's definitely a heavily Jewish influenced audience. Um, we know that um, in other churches that um, there were certain groups, uh, they would call them, Paul would call them Judaizers, that um, we're kind of pulling people away from Christ and back into the ways of the law. So there may be some of that influence going on. But um, regardless of who exactly the audience is, we what we do know is this. The main point of the book is this. It's that Jesus is better because he's the fulfillment of all the covenants and the scripture. So if you've ever gone to a church that was going through a series on Hebrews, I can almost guarantee that something to the effect of Jesus is better was the title of that sermon series. I know that I have sat uh, under two, uh, two series that were about Hebrews and both of them were called Jesus is better. And then I'm pretty sure that I've read like a Bible study devotional about Hebrews that was also called Jesus is better. So that's general agreement. We know that's what the book's about. That's what the author's going to be talking about, whoever he or she may be. So that's kind of the deal with Hebrews. That's what it's about. Um, it's It kind of starts out, and I just want to give this a mention because it's right where it starts. So if you start reading it, you might be like, why didn't he mention that? Um, it's going to start with this argument um, that Jesus is better than the angels, which 
for me, when I read it, maybe for you too, I'm kind of like, I don't know that I ever thought that angels would be better than Jesus. So that doesn't really strike a chord with me. Now we have to remember that we have all of scripture and we have the complete revelation of scripture. Um, so primarily for us, we probably think of Jesus first as God and then as God who became man, God incarnate um, in his earthly ministry. Whereas um, these people, they thought of Jesus first as a man and were coming to the realization that he was also God. So you can see that maybe in some of their minds, even if it wasn't explicitly, that they could think of Jesus as an earthly being and um, angels being heavenly beings. They might think have reason to think that angels were better, um, but he's going to make the point why that's not. So I just wanted to briefly mention that just because it's right there at the beginning. But where I want to start um, really digging into what the author is talking about is he's going to make um, the argument, which is pretty big, that Jesus is better than Moses and kind of by association, better than the old covenant, better than the law. So that's kind of the, the first part of this, of these eight chapters where I really want to dig in because this just is so important for us to understand where the author is coming from here and what kind of points trying to make. So um, Moses is one of the most well-known biblical figures in the Jewish faith, especially um, a major, major figure. It's pretty much Moses and Abraham and David. Um, those are Kind of the three biggest figures um, in the in the Old Testament, and Moses um, was a hero of the Jewish faith. You may remember that he led the Israelites out of Egypt um, from slavery, and then um, he takes them out and toward the Promised Land, though they don't quite make it because they're a bunch of grumblers. And uh, he also is going to be the one who receives the law uh, on Mount Sinai. So um, basically. That's where this kind of tie, when I say that Jesus is better than Moses and by association, the old covenant or the law, that's kind of where that association comes from. Because Moses is the one who delivered the law from God to the people. He was kind of a mediator of that. So um, if people think Moses, if they think the law, they're going to think of the other. So if somebody mentions Moses, they're going to think of the law. If somebody mentions the law, they're going to think of Moses as the kind of human connection to that. So keeping that in mind and knowing that, again, this is a very heavily Jewish influenced audience, um, this is a pretty this is a pretty big statement that the author is making. Um, and we're going to see him specifically talk about this starting in Hebrews 3, verse 3, and I'll read through verse 6. It says, for Jesus had been counted, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our, our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So, the author's going to say this, he's going to give his little thesis statement, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And he's going to use this um, analogy that may not quite hold water for us anymore. I don't think many of us know who built our house. If you do, you like the house better than them and probably. So maybe not quite the most 21st century relevant um, analogy for us, but I think you can see the point he's making um, that ultimately, I mean, the house is nothing if the person doesn't build it right. Um, and so he's going to make this comparison that Moses was faithful to God's house. So when we think about what he means when he says God's house, 
I mean, in verse six, the author is going to say we are his house. So we're referring to the church, those who believe. Um, but you could think of God's house as really all God's people for all time and all places. Um, and maybe even God's divine plan. You could consider it that way, too. So it says that Moses was faithful to God's people, to God's plan, but he was faithful as a servant. And he testified to things that were to come, basically, is what he's arguing. But Christ is different because he was faithful to God's people, to God's plan, but it was as a son. So ultimately, Christ is better because he's part of the Godhead. He's part of the Trinity. He is the one who's inheriting this house, so to speak. Um, So Christ was, as Moses was faithful, though not perfectly, um, as a servant, Christ was faithful perfectly and as a son. So ultimately, he is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And we are the ones, we are his inheritance. We are the inheritance of Christ, that he has inherited uh, uh, his church and we are his bride. So that's kind of where he's going to start with the person of Moses and why Jesus is better than Moses, using that kind of logic there. And then we're going to jump all the way down to chapter eight, where he's going to talk about um, the old covenant a little more specifically and talk about why um, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant and why that is. So um, I'm just going to paraphrase those first seven verses of chapter eight. The author is basically saying, so the old covenant used God's earthly dwelling place to reflect his heavenly dwelling place. So um, when they were wandering in the desert, they had the tabernacle and there were some very specific rules for that. And uh, then ultimately Solomon's going to build God's temple in Jerusalem. And so those are kind of God's quote unquote earthly dwelling places. Um, But what the author's saying, those are just a reflection. God doesn't ultimately live on earth. His home is in heaven. He is a heavenly being. He is above earth. He's not bound to earth. So he's saying the old covenant really just served to reflect this actual dwelling in heaven. And he's going to make another step, another step further and say, the old covenant had worse promises. It had lesser promises, which that's, again, that's kind of a shock to the ears. If you are a person um, from Israel, a person with Jewish heritage at that time to say that, the covenant, which held their nation together for hundreds of years, had lesser promises. And we're going to jump to verse or to chapter 10 and see kind of why he says that. I know it's, they give us eight chapters. I complain about it and then I add a chapter. So go, go figure, whatever. So in chapter 10, verse one through four, we get a little bit more explanation of this. It says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So we see that the Old Covenant um, which was good, and we see that in other places in Scripture. Paul's going to talk about that a lot. How the the law was good, but it wasn't. We weren't good um, in our reaction to it because of our sinful nature. Um, but the author of Hebrews is saying, yeah, the the law may have been good for a time, but it was never going to be the complete thing because it's just a shadow of the things to come. And he refers to the sacrificial system. So a major part of the old covenant of the Mosaic law 
Um, the again connected to Moses because he was the giver of the law from a human standpoint. What the sacrificial system was a major part, and so there would be sacrifices that would be given regularly um, in order to atone for the people's sin. So the high priest would offer sin on his own behalf and then on behalf of the people. Um, and that was kind of, again, and it's it can be tempting for us to think, oh yeah, the old covenant was about works and now we have a, we have a covenant of grace by faith. Um, we do have a covenant of grace by faith, but their covenant was also a covenant of grace by faith because ultimately it was by God's grace that he created a system that could atone for sins, even if it was just a shadow of good things to come. And it takes faith to say, okay, if I, I believe that I'm okay in the eyes of God, I believe that um, God is accepting this sacrifice um, if I allow this animal to take the punishment that I should have had. So there's grace involved that God even made a way for us to be atoned, even if it was just a shadow. And then it takes faith to believe that um, God's actually going to accept that sacrifice. So Again, that's just a side note, but important for us to think about. But ultimately, the author says the blood of bulls and goats is not the same. Um, our punishment for our sin, the wages of sin, is death. And ultimately, the death of an animal is not equivalent to our death. We were created in God's image. We are different than animals. So it says it, it couldn't have taken away sins. And in fact, the sacrifices remind, reminded everybody that sin still existed every year. So... When it says it's a covenant with lesser promises, that's kind of the that's kind of the deal that he's talking about. Um, the end of that, with the promises, were that if you continue doing these sacrifices, then um, you're good for now. But it doesn't do anything about the sin. Again, it's a reminder of sin. It can't take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats. But ultimately, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, which we refer to as the new covenant. And his ministry is in God's actual dwelling place in heaven. Remember, Jesus is alive. We all know it. Um, he intercedes on our behalf at the right hand of God. So his ministry to us is ongoing in the heavenly places. So it's not a shadow. It's, in, it's not in a representation of God's dwelling place. He's in the dwelling place of God as part of the Godhead. And so uh, going back to chapter 8, um, we're going to see what is the what is this new covenant? What is this better covenant that Jesus is the mediator of? And he's going to take a quote from Jeremiah 31, which is one of our major pillars of seeing the new covenant that we live in now um, foretold in the Old Testament. And it says um, in Hebrews, it's starting in verse 10, uh, chapter 8, verse 10, says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So that's, again, from Jeremiah 31, quoted here in Hebrews 8. Um, that's one of the pillars of the new covenant is that there's going to be a day where the Lord, um, that his law is on our minds and our hearts and that he'll be our God. We will be his people. And it's, it's not going to be like the old covenant where the laws were written on stone tablets that, but this written on their hearts and on their minds. And so this is, this kind of is a good illustration because we do live under this, but we don't also fully see the truth of this in our world, right? We don't see that 
people don't need to be exhorted to know the Lord because everybody knows him. Like that's not fully the case. Um, anyone who would be a part of the church, you would say, yeah, everyone knows the Lord, but that doesn't mean that we still can't teach one another. Um, and that everyone knows him perfectly or that you could say the law is perfectly on our minds and on our hearts. So it's this aspect of scripture that we see often that we refer to as already, but not yet. So it's um, to an extent is taking place. We see the Holy spirit is a major part of how the law is in our mind and hearts. Um, it makes us his people. It's our way of knowing the Lord because of that sealing of the Holy spirit. Uh, but then we also don't see necessarily a place where, like I said, where we don't have to exhort one another, know the Lord, where we um, see that there is no more sin or that people perfectly understand all of God's laws. So, but that's the promise. And Jesus is the mediator of that covenant. And he is able to mediate that covenant ultimately because of his death on the cross and his resurrection on our behalf. So taking that punishment once for all as God who lived as a man without sin, um, taking that punishment for us, uh, for our sins, which was death. So the author tells us he, it's probably tough for them to hear a little bit, but hey guys, Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the old covenant. So that's one of the biggest points that he's going to make. Uh, moving on to the next thing that he's going to talk about is that Jesus is better than Melchizedek. And everybody said, what's a Melchizedek? Yes, Melchizedek is a uh, kind of, he's almost like a legendary figure in the Old Testament. He's not someone we typically know a lot about, but um, who he is serves as a type for Christ. So Melchizedek was a real person. We see him in Genesis 14. He interacts with Abram before his name has been changed. And um, he's a unique guy. Um, and he, and it's going to say multiple times in Hebrews, even before it starts talking about it explicitly, that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. So we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. So Hebrews 7, 1 through 3 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So let's start with verse 3, that he doesn't have a father or mother, and that he doesn't have beginning of days or end of life. Um, again, Melchizedek was a real person. He did have a father and he did have a mother. Um, but what the author is trying to bring up here is um, it's kind of almost like they don't know where he came from. Like Melchizedek appears and we don't know where he came from. He wasn't Jewish. The Jewish nation hadn't been founded yet. Um, so I think that's kind of what it's getting out without he's without father, mother, genealogy. But then it's more saying when not having beginning of days nor end of life kind of this order that he represents. Melchizedek resent, uh, presents a type of which Christ is the ultimate fulfillment. So um, looking in the Old Testament, we can often see types of Christ. Uh, so um, I was just talking with Jeff, our missions pastor recently about this um, story of David and Goliath. David was not Jesus, right? He was David. But in his fight against Goliath, he represents a type of Christ in a couple of different ways. One he uh, he's not really well known. He's not well thought of. 
but he's faithful to what God's calling him to. He defeats this grand enemy on behalf of the nation of Israel, right? Okay, kind of sounds familiar. So Jesus also not well known, well thought of, mocked, beaten, is obedient to God on behalf of the nation. So we see David as a type of Christ. We see that ultimately what David did fully realized in Christ. So Melchizedek is a figure like that. Um, And the author of Hebrews is really trying to make clear, um, not that Melchizedek is eternal, but that he represents an order which is eternal because it's always been around because Jesus has always been around. So that's kind of what we're talking about there. So Melchizedek, um, like it says there, his name means king of righteousness. um, And then... He was a king of an area called Salem, which very well may have been where Jerusalem um, was by the time the Israelites show up there. Salem coming from the uh, ancient Near East language, meaning similar to the word shalom, meaning peace. And so he's basically using those two things, not that him being king of Salem meant he was actually a king of peace, priest, or king of peace, but that it kind of connects him to who Jesus is. Again, he's kind of fleshing out this type. Um, but Melchizedek shows up and Abraham like treats him like a priest of God, even though, again, he's never met this guy. He's not Jewish. The nation hasn't been established. So he's kind of this really like legendary, almost mythological figure in the Old Testament. And something that was interesting about him is that he was a king and he was a priest. So you may see there too what his connection to Jesus is because Jesus is ultimately our high priest and we know he's also our king. So that's kind of who Melchizedek is. And he represents this type in which Christ is going to be the ultimate fulfillment. So um, the author is going to explain um, that this foretelling in Psalm 110 is going to necessitate a change in covenant because otherwise priesthood would have continued through Aaron. So he's going to talk about in Psalm 110, the psalmist is going to talk about um, Jesus in a way. It's kind of a, a psalm in which we we see who Jesus is. We recognize it now as a legend or as a messianic psalm. It said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's what it says there in Psalm 110. So that's kind of serves as a, an understanding now that we see, well, this priesthood through Aaron wasn't going to obviously continue if there was this prophecy about a new priesthood in a different order. So um, basically it's the author of Hebrews saying, Oh, of course there's a change. Of course, we're not still following the priesthood of Aaron because we see this prophecy through of a person through the order of Melchizedek, which we ultimately know is Jesus. And then in Hebrews 7, 26 through 28, um, it's going to talk, or the author is going to talk, about how Jesus is that more perfect high priest, starting in verse 26. It says, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, points a son who has been made perfect forever. So ultimately, recognizing that the old priesthood, the one that was not in the order of Melchizedek, it was people in their weakness serving on behalf of the people to God. It wasn't perfect people. Um, They had to sacrifice for themselves. They were sinners as well. 
And so it says it was fitting that we should ultimately receive this person in the order of Melchizedek, one who was king and priest, and that was holy, so set apart, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners, and that's ultimately who Jesus is for us. So Melchizedek looms large as this figure in the Old Testament, one kind of legendary, like I said, almost mythological, though he was a real person, um, and what we know about him is fairly limited, but we see that he had this unique calling from God as a a priest to God, even outside of the uh, law, which had not been established. So it's this, the author saying, yeah, Melchizedek, he was kind of a unique guy, really awesome. Our ancestor paid a tithe to him, which really shows that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, right? Because that's how it, that's kind of how it works. Um, Melchizedek gave a blessing, which meant he was in a position of authority over Abram. But he's saying, Jesus is even better than that because he's in this order of Melchizedek, but ultimately he's the one who actually was the one with no genealogy, the one who actually didn't have a beginning and has no end. So even more than this legendary figure, Melchizedek, who is greater than Abram, Jesus is even better than him. And so as we talk about the the new covenant, as we talk about the old covenant, how the new covenant's better, how Jesus is better, how he's the better mediator. He's better than Moses. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than the angels. All of those things are really great. And the problem is, how can we be certain, right? How can we be certain that this covenant is true, that this covenant is lasting? Because people who experience the old covenant, they found that it had an end. So how do we find hope in knowing that this new covenant, which is so wonderful, which is run by such a wonderful high priest, how do we trust that it is sure? How do we trust that it is firm? Luckily, the author of Hebrews has helped us out. Hebrews 6, 13 through 16 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham having patiently waited and obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes an oath is, is, is final for confirmation. So you will remember the promise made to Abram was that he will make him a great nation. He will have many descendants. All the nations of the world will be blessed through him. That's the, the promise that's being referred to. So the, the scene that is being described here in Hebrews six comes from Genesis 22, which is kind of, our uh, bookend to what we would consider kind of the Abrahamic covenant epic, because it's got uh, parts in chapter 12, chapter 17, 22 um, in Genesis. This is kind of the like right at the end uh, where God is going to absolutely solidify this covenant with Abram. It's actually right after um, Abraham shows that he's willing to sacrifice Isaac. And it's after this that um, this happens in just 22, 15 through 17. It says, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So what the author of Hebrews is saying, he's kind of helping explain this to us, is that God had no one greater by whom to swear. If you're going to swear an oath, you swear by someone greater. You know, people say, I swear to God. They never mean it, obviously, um, in our world today. But if you're going to swear, you swear by something greater, right? God had nothing greater to swear on. So he swore on his very self 
that he would keep this promise to Abraham. And what is that promise? That promise is the one that's fully realized in Christ. God has sworn upon himself that this covenant will be sure, that this covenant will be fulfilled, that he will remain faithful to this covenant that he had to Abraham. Ultimately, that's our hope when we think about what is our hope in this new covenant. It's that God was so sure that it's so certain that he swore upon himself because there was no one else he could swear by because nobody else has authority over him. He swore on his own name, on his own character, which we can fully trust that he would do this for Abraham. And the author of Hebrews finishes in verses 17 through 20 saying, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable nature of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, that being his character and the oath, Side note, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He says, we who have fled for refuge have this hope, a sure and steady anchor. That's Caitlin's, my wife Caitlin's favorite verse, 619 there. These people are undergoing difficulty. These people are undergoing um, persecution from outside their communities, from the Romans, from inside their Jewish communities. They're undergoing persecution. They have fled to, for refuge in Christ. And he's saying those of us who have done that, we have this sure foundation that this faith that we hold to is a sure and steady anchor. And ultimately, if it's true for them as believers in Christ, it's true for us as believers in Christ. We're not fighting the same specific difficulties, but we have to be certain in our mind that when those difficulties come, that we have a sure and steady anchor for our soul and it's rooted in the person of Jesus and Jesus is better.